Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can be here today. Lord, we are grateful for the very desire you've put in our hearts to be here today, to know you more fully, to know your word better, and to be better equipped to minister to others as well. And so, Father, we pray that you would use this hour to take all that we've learned thus far and to make better application Uh, by your grace, into our own lives, and also to have further wisdom as to how to come alongside others and the various struggles that they may experience. And so we commit this time to you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, well, in this session, we're going to build on what you covered in the last two sessions. So you looked at progressive sanctification, how we grow and change. The last session, uh, the gospel and the implications for counseling. And so in this session, we're going to look at how to implement those things, the impact, the effects of the gospel, into what we would call the six key elements of biblical counseling. And so really we're kind of looking into, as you can see on the screen there, key elements kind of defined as the methodology that's rooted in love and sound theology. So how do we take the the wonderful teaching last night on all this theology and how do we begin to bring that to bear upon our own lives and into the lives of others in very practical, tangible ways? And so that's what the key elements seek to do is to help us understand how to uh, bring this to bear upon our lives. And so we're going to jump right into it. The first key element, gather data. Now... Listen to this email that contains two diary entries. One is from a wife and one from her husband concerning uh, their day. The wife wrote this. Tonight, I thought my husband was acting weird. He made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. I was shopping with my friends all day long, so I thought he was upset at the fact that I was a bit late, but he made no comment on it. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested that we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said, nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said he wasn't upset, that it had nothing to do with me and not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled slightly and kept driving. I can't explain his behavior. I don't know why he didn't say, I love you too. When we got home, I felt as if I had lost him completely, as if he wanted nothing to do with me anymore. He just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed. But I still felt that he was distracted. And his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I cried. I don't know what to do. I'm almost sure that his thoughts are with someone else. My life is a disaster. Now, if you're a good biblical counselor, what's the first thing you're going to do? Should be on the screen behind you there. Gather data. So how about we hear his diary entry? Motorcycle won't start. Can't figure out why. (laughs) Now, do you see why gathering data might be a little bit important? 
if we operate off of assumptions, we're likely to take a campfire and turn it into a Californian forest fire, right? And so we need to gather data. We need to understand both perspectives, the fullness of what's going on as much as we possibly can. We need to get the facts, and we need to get the facts correct. And so in formal counseling, when I start out with a counselee, say, from the community, uh, I go over our counseling consent form. Uh, And so as we have others come in, we put out there very clearly what we're planning on uh, doing with them, uh, the source of our authority being the scriptures. And they have this form, a page long, that they will read over. I'll ask them if they've read it. I'll cover a couple of key points to make sure they know where we're coming from. They agreed to do what kind of counseling? Biblical counseling. And so they'll consent to that. I'll make sure they understand that. And then I'll ask them to open up their Bibles, as I'll do with you now. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Proverbs 18, 13. Proverbs 18, 13. And even as they're opening their Bibles, I'm gathering data. As I'm watching some of you now, are you able to find the book of Proverbs? (laughs) Okay. Are they able to go right to it? They open up towards the middle of the Bible? Or do they kind of just stare at it blankly and then go to the table of contents? Okay. There's gathered gathering taking place. Do they know God's word? If they don't know where Proverbs is, it's very likely they're, they're more or less biblically illiterate. So gathering data, even from the very beginning. And as they get there, I'll ask one of them to read it. And so they'll read Proverbs 18, 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And so following the the footprints of Randy Patton and what he's modeled, I'll ask them something like this. According to this verse, for me to give you counsel before I get the facts would be foolishness and shameful. Is that the kind of counseling you came to receive? Obviously, the answer is no. And so then I'll say something to the effect, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions, some some good questions to help me get to understand who you are so that I'll know how to take you to God's word to give you the help that you have come for. Okay, so right up front as I'm gathering data, what am I trying to communicate to them about our time together? Yeah, we're going to be in the scripture. I want to immediately point them to the sufficiency and the authority of God's word. I also want to communicate with them that I care enough about them to truly hear what they have to say. And I want to understand it well so that I'll truly be able to help them with not my opinions, but with the word of God. And so that's something we want to establish in the very session, even as we're seeking to gather data about them and their situations. And so how do we go about gathering data? Now, this is from How to Counsel Biblically, a comprehensive data gathering plan using the acronym of PREACH. Probably a preacher who put this together. And so P, physical. As we're seeking to gather data, we want to know about their physiological state. Um, What are their sleep patterns? Um, And and those are questions that we have on there. If they're only getting two or three hours of sleep every night, is that going to probably impact other things? For most of us, severely, right? Medications. What kind of medications are they on? What's the purpose that they're on those medications? 
uh, their diet, activity level, exercise, any illnesses, chronic illnesses? Is there extreme suffering uh, that they're going through physiologically? And then our resources and relationships. Uh, what is their job? What do they do for a living? How many hours a week are they working? If they're working 90 hours a week and they're gone three out of the four weeks of the month and they're having marital problems and the wife feels lonely, are we starting to gather some data, make some connections here? And so just general things like that. Obviously spiritually, which we'll get to here more in a moment. The letter E, emotions. What are their uh, maybe dominant emotions? Are they struggling with anxiety, despair, anger? What are the things that they would say controls me at times? Uh, Actions. What are the behaviors, the things that they're coming to counseling for? What are perhaps sins of omission, the things that God's clearly called them to do that they're not participating in, or the things that God's called them not to do that they're choosing to do in violation of His Word? See conceptual. What are their thinking patterns? What are their goals? What are their desires? Ultimately, we're looking for what are they worshiping? I want, I want, I want. What are they wanting? What is the ruling desires of their heart? And then historical. We want to know their their general background. We want to know, in in a brief version, their life history. If they've been severely abused, do we want to know that? Yeah, there's implications there, right? And so we want to know um, what's taken place in their past that has present implications as you seek to meet with them. And so how do we go about gathering this data, ways of gathering data? Well, in a very formal sense, as I already mentioned, uh, the PDI, Personal Data Inventory. We have a counseling agreement, and then right behind that, we have a PDI, and on this, there's just a lot of information that, that we seek uh, to know. And this helps in a variety of ways in a formal sense before you even meet the person. Um, you're able to get a pretty good understanding of what they're struggling with. And you're able to begin to prepare how you might help them, right? What scriptures, what passages, what truths they need to know. And so you can use that for preparation. But some of the questions that that are on there is this. Is there a crisis in your life right now? If yes, describe conditions and effects. What are we doing? We're gathering the data. We're trying to understand what they're going through, where they need help. Another good question. What is the problem that brings you to counseling? Okay, and sometimes that's more than one, and sometimes the problem they give you isn't really the ultimate underlying problem, but you're going to work with what they they give you. What have you done about it so far, and what are your expectations regarding this counseling? That's good data to gather, and you can do that even before you meet up with them uh, through a forum such as this. And so we gather the data, um, as we look at that PDI, let me... Let me uh, have you think through as well some homework assignments. So you can do that beforehand and then after you've met with them for gathering further data. Uh, homework assignments are very important. One way that you can do that is through journaling. And so you might have them uh, journal you know, a one, two-page overview of their life with key events, key people, uh, shaping influences in their life. And that'll help you gather data about who they are, where they're coming from, how they develop the perspective, uh, and how they've gotten into the situations in which they currently are. And so, again, journaling can be very, very helpful. Uh, also, with journaling, uh, really helpful, both in gathering data and actually beginning to help the person. And I brought quite a few things with me here. 
Uh, you might have them journal, for instance, uh, if they're struggling with anger. And so there's little homework things you can give to them. I like this one a whole lot. I think this was by Lou Priello. Um, and if they're struggling with anger, you might have them journal these four questions, the answers to these four questions. What circumstances led uh, to my becoming angry? Okay. What was going on? In other words, what, what was the circumstances? What did I say or do when I became angry? Okay. And then what is the biblical evaluation of what I said and did when I became angry? And then what should I have said and done when I became angry? Okay. This is helpful because you're not watching them 24-7 with the surveillance camera getting the full picture of what their life is actually like. But they can give you snapshots. And so you can ask them, okay, each time you get angry, I want you to take this and I want you to write out by the end of the day uh, the answers to these questions. That does a lot. It helps you gather data about what's really going on. But also, what are they beginning to do? Yeah, yeah self-counsel, right? What was going on? What did I want? What did I do? What does God want? And the other side, that deals with the heart behind that behavior, okay? And so that's what we're wanting them to do is learn to self-counsel, to identify whatever the situation is, as God would identify it, to identify the desire and what the desire should have been, and then to ultimately look to Christ. What are the implications of the gospel upon this particular struggle? So journaling is very helpful in helping people with that. You might also, with the journal, have them uh, have a prayer journal, um, and just have them write down at the end of each day, you know, how they would, would typically pray about the situation that they're struggling with. Okay? That can be really helpful because you're then hearing from them how they talk to God about their situation. And ultimately, who they believe God is in the midst of their situation. Or how they're failing to understand who God is in the midst of their situation. And so even a prayer journal um, is good. And one, helping them perhaps learn how to pray biblically. But also just hear how they're communing with, with God. And so journaling is, is a very helpful way of gathering data. Now also, in gathering data, we want to gather information from observation and from others. Okay, And so if you've got two people in the room, let's say it's a husband and wife... And uh, as the one's talking, the other one kind of goes like this and kind of turns away. Or if there's tears streaming down their cheeks, are you gathering data? Are you going to need to gather some more data and ask more questions? You know, what's, what's going on? What are you thinking? What are you feeling as he or she is talking? Yeah, and so observation. Uh, and then another thing, as much as possible, as much as appropriate, we want to hear from as many parties who are directly involved as we can, Right? Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit as to why that's so important. But you want to get as much information as you can so that you can best address the situation as thoroughly as you can. And so in gathering data, of course, we want to ask good questions. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. Can we relate to that? It's complex, right? It's like deep water. But a man of understanding will draw it out. Okay, how do we draw it out? This is deep. We ask questions, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We need to get them speaking. We need to ask good questions that reveal what's in the heart. What are their thought patterns? What are their desires? What are they functionally worshiping in light of their situation? 
We also want to gather data through what we would call extensive probing. Extensive probing. We want to ask lots of open-ended questions uh, that will produce facts. And the PDI, again, is, is really good in facilitating this. For example, uh, one of the things on there is what are the emotional symptoms that you're currently experiencing? Okay? And so as you go through these, and usually there's multiple circled, and then you can ask a question such as this, what is it in your life right now that's stirring up all these emotions? Okay, maybe they're fearful. Can you help me understand what leads you to be fearful, to be anxious, to despair, to be angry? And then what do they do? They unpack who and when and where and what they wanted and what they didn't get, what they got they didn't want. All those types of things begin to come out. You've got almost all you need to understand the situation to begin to help them if you'll unpack that well. Okay, asking good questions. As they then relate those things, extensive um, questioning, probing, it's kind of like firing a shotgun, right? You're in Texas. Most of you know what a shotgun is. Some of you probably have one. Hopefully you don't have one when you're here, though. That may be illegal now. I don't know. But a shotgun. When you shoot a shotgun, there's multiple little BBs that go out, right? It's meant to hit a target in a broad way. That's what we're doing with extensive probing. We're asking a whole lot of questions, a lot of different areas of life, to make sure we're not missing some big category that would help us put the puzzles together, the puzzle pieces together, understand where they're at. So lots of questions. But once we do that, usually there are several categories, several areas of life where we say, you know what, there's something to that. I need to come back to that and, and, and probe a little more, ask a few more questions to better understand that. And that's what we uh, refer to then as uh, intensive probing. Intensive probing. We want to know what's going on at the heart level behind these these things that have already been noted. And so back to that real quick. Uh, intensive probing, Proverbs 4.23, so crucial as we think about biblical counseling. And really what sets biblical counseling apart in a lot of ways, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows... From it, And so in intensive probing, we want to take the main issues from the extensive probing and we want to focus in on the, the things that we think are vital one at a time. And so why do people do what they do? Because somebody else made them do it? Because of what's in their hearts. And so in intensive probing, we're trying to figure out the heart behind the behavior. Okay, very important. So illustration. I've got here, and you've probably seen this illustration before, I've got here a bottle of water. Take the lid off, and I bump this over, what's going to happen? Water, you guys are really smart. Okay, Water's going to come out. Same thing in life, right? When we're pressured, our response isn't directly caused by what bumped into us. Our response is our interpretation from the heart, what we think about what's happened to us and how we choose to respond, okay? And so you can have somebody that pulls out in, in front of you, for instance, as you're driving down the highway, and you could have some evil thoughts or shake your fist at them or whatever else and have that kind of response. Or if your heart is being ruled by the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is demonstrated, you're actually loving that person, kind to that person. You slow down, you wave at them and say, I'm glad you're able to get there before me. Right? The kind of response we have 
reveals what's going on in our heart. Okay? And so the heart is of utmost importance. As we gather data, we don't want to know just the behaviors, but also the heart behind the behavior. And so in intensive probing, we want to look for themes and patterns. Do they have a biblical view of God? Very important. And this is going to take several sessions, and this will come out in various ways because we live out of our theology, right? What we believe about God then leads to how we we live. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why is that true? Yeah. Because our understanding of who God is and our knowledge of Him then directs how we live. Now, obviously, we don't correlate that perfectly, right? But the better and the higher and the more correct, accurate view that we have of God... Uh, our lives increasingly reflect that. And so what is their theology, their view of God? Also, do they have a biblical view of mankind? Do they believe that mankind is basically good and that Jesus is basically like a band-aid to help cover up any minor defects they might have in their life? Or are they more like the tax collector there in uh, Luke 18 who couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, he, he beat his breast and cried out, Have mercy on me. What is their view of man? Is man basically good? Is man born innocent? Or do they understand the fall and the implications of sin upon the entirety of mankind? And therefore, in what ways do they look to Jesus? Number three, do they have a biblical view of trials and suffering? And so as with Paul in Romans 5, are they able to rejoice in their suffering because they know what the Scripture says, that it produces endurance, character, and hope that will not be put to shame? And so what is their view of trials and sufferings? Whom are they living to please? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, We make it our ambition to please Him. To please him for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for our sake died and was raised who are they living to please is it self and there's really you've probably heard this before there's only two options on the shelf pleasing God or pleasing self it really comes down to that who are they living to please themselves or God. And the next, what, uh, whom or what seems to motivate their behavior? Matthew six twenty one. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are they treasuring? Functionally, practically, above all else, in light of their situation. And so with intensive probing, we want to also look for then what we could call complicating factors. Okay, so a complicating factor is basically when you have an original problem and it's not dealt with in a God-honoring way and it then creates another problem, a complicating factor. Uh, Jay Adams puts it this way, the downward cycle of sin moves from a problem to a faulty sinful response thereby causing an additional complicating problem which is met by an additional sinful response. Can you think of a biblical example of this? Cain. Cain, okay, yeah. 
David and Bathsheba. Judas, okay. Who's that? Yeah, the original fall, okay. Yes, if you take, for instance, of those, David and Bathsheba, right? There is a problem um, in that David should have been with his men. Instead, he was idle. In that idol, he saw Bathsheba, he lusted upon her, he didn't turn from that, but rather he indulged that, brought her in, she got pregnant. Rather than confessing that sin, what did he do? Tried to cover it up, brings Uriah back. He was an honorable man, unlike David, would not sleep with his wife when he was back. Uh, And therefore, what did David do? Send him out to the front lines where he was killed, okay? And so if we don't deal with a problem in a biblical way, it leads to more and more complicating problems. And so maybe to visualize this, this is kind of adapted from Jay Adams. We have an original problem. But the original problem, if we have a sinful response, it leads to complicating problems. And then that complicating problem, if they have a sinful response to that, it leads to uh, more complicating problems. And it just goes on and on and on. And so with that... Um, Get back through here. And so with that, when people come for counseling, they're usually coming because there's a whole bunch of complicating problems at this point, right? And so you're working with kind of the outflow of of not just one thing, but what is this one thing turned into? And there's going to be usually a variety of different things that you need to identify. These These are real struggles in the life, the relationship, the marriage, the family, whatever it may be. And need to identify each of those problems. And then we need to identify what is of most importance to address first. And so that's part of the data gathering. Here are the things they have stated. Here are the, the very real issues. Uh, what is most important for us to work with first? And we'll, you'll, you'll get to that as we continue on. But let's then look at uh, questions that grow out of the facts that are received. Um, and, and that's important. As you receive information... You don't want to immediately, and the temptation is, they're sharing something, and you remember somebody else had a similar experience, or you had a similar experience, and maybe we're interpreting their experience to your experience. We need to be careful with that. There can be an appropriate time to encourage others with that, but we need to listen well, and we need to, out of what they share, ask more questions to make sure we really understand exactly what has been communicated. And as we do so, we want to make sure we're not making assumptions, and also we want to withhold judgment while gathering information. And so I referenced earlier Proverbs 18:17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Okay? If your parents, you have children who are old enough to talk uh, and, and behave and act out, you know the importance of this, right? You, you hear one side of it, and then you find out, oh, this was actually very different. Okay, it only gets more complicated as those kids get older, right? And so you want to make sure you hear both sides, if at all possible. Um, the ACB Standards of Conduct on this says this, The biblical counselor has no preconceptions concerning the needs of a counselee other than those already stated. In other words, you take them at, at their word. The integrity of the counselee, the statements by the counselee, are accepted at face value as a truthful description of the problem. Confidentiality is respected where possible. Information is safeguarded, and the best interest and well-being of the counseling is preserved. Okay? And so we do want to take each person. We want to 
make the assumption they're they're telling the truth, but at the same time we want to make sure um, their understanding of the truth, if possible, and there's other people involved that we hear from all parties, right? We want to make sure because everybody tends to have their own interpretation of what happened, what the problem is. And so, again, as much as possible, we want to hear from, from all people and honoring each person in that process. And so note also uh, important areas for intensive probing that we need to get to later. And so especially in your first session, a lot of times there's a lot of information coming at you. And there may be some bad theology that's like, oh, goodness, i got to deal with that. Or there may be a situation that, hey, that's an easy one. Let's go ahead and, and talk about this one. But you want to get all the information, and then you need to just kind of in your notes think through, okay, what is most important to focus on today and what can wait? What is priority and what can be put off until another time? Because if you try to address everything as it comes out, in the first session, you're going to overwhelm them and you're going to get overwhelmed. And rather, we're good listeners. We're asking questions. We're seeking to understand. And once we've done that, as we'll see here in a moment, uh, we'll seek to discern the problem and then develop a plan. And so, uh, note important things to be dealt with later. Um, next, seek to discern whether the counselee is a believer. Okay, uh, very, very important. My family just watched through a good series by R.C. Sproul on the assurance of salvation. And he made a good statement in there that there's many who profess Christ, but far fewer that possess Christ. And I found in biblical counseling that from the community, when people come in, there's a, a check, little question with a box there. Uh, are you a believer? Yes, no, not sure. Almost everybody will say yes. And yet, when you begin to ask questions, you see, okay, they grew up, they had parents who went to church, they, they've been to this church, therefore they think they're a Christian. They really have no concept of what it means to be in a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to seek to discern up front, where do they actually stand uh, with Christ? Uh, a really good question as you, as you go through that. Uh, and this is one that I had years ago with a local businessman in, in Glen Rose. I had lunch with him, and, and he was a professing believer. And I, I, I had just in the course of the conversation some reservations. Things just didn't really line up with this profession and, and the way he was talking, what he was talking about, the way he was talking about different things. And so I just asked him, so you, you, you call yourself a believer. Help me understand, who, who is Christ to you personally? And his answer was, um, he's, he's a, a good teacher. And by following him, I'm able to get more of what I want. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Was Christ a good teacher? Yeah, he was the ultimate teacher, right? He had all authority, spoke the word perfectly. Um, but if that's really it, uh, then, then he kind of missed the boat. And, and so we need to know um, where they stand and, and, Pilgrim's Progress here, you know, a great example of, of many who professed uh, perhaps to, to know Christ, and yet ultimately they viewed Christ as, as formalist and hypocrisy, talkative and ignorance, only as a means to get more of what they wanted. Okay? Christ was a means to make much of themselves um, rather than to die to themselves and to live unto Christ and to make much of Him. And so what is their, their concept of salvation? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, 
but considers them foolishness. And so you've got somebody who maybe has, they can articulate a profession of faith pretty well, but as you're giving them homework and as you're interacting with the scriptures, they're just literally not getting it. I mean, there seems to be no spirit-enabled ability to understand, comprehend, and make any kind of real application out of what, of what you're hearing. In fact, they may be actually kind of hostile towards it. But what's this say? They consider the things of God as foolishness and cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so on the, the PDI, that question, um, are you a believer, yes, no, and sure, I don't just take their little check mark, yes, assume they're a believer, and then begin to counsel, disciple them as if they're a believer. I always ask follow-up questions. And, and a lot of times you'll get that um, at the beginning of a session. I'll ask them, give me in five minutes or less an overview of, of your life. Tell me your life story. And oftentimes, especially from the community, there's no mention of God, of Christ, of, of coming to Christ, of any transformation in their lives. Maybe they mentioned the church they went to when they were a kid. Um, but if it's left out, are we going to be okay with that? Or do we want to ask more questions? And so I'll always ask them questions like the EE questions. Um, you know, concerning your relationship with Christ, if you were to die today, do you believe you'd go to heaven? Almost everybody says, yes. And then you have a follow-up question. If you were to stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you tell him? And that's where what they really believe in and are trusting in comes out. Well, uh, I've done more good than bad. I'm not as bad as my spouse. Uh, God is a God of love, and therefore, at the end of time, we all make it, to, all roads lead to the same place. Right? And, and they have perhaps a works-oriented view of salvation. They're trusting in their works. They're better than somebody else. They're not trusting fully in Christ and His work. And so, again, uh, part of our homework assignment, hopefully part of our discussion in that meeting, is going to be the gospel, but then also maybe give them something to help them understand what the gospel really is. And you got a great session last hour on that, so you can share that with them. And so those are important up friends we gather data. Is the person a believer? Also, just, just kind of helpful, um, and I think Randy Patton may have shared this, um, avoid asking why questions. Generally, we want to avoid asking why questions. And so consider this, for example, when God confronted Adam in Genesis 3, um, God didn't say to him, why in the world did you listen to your wife? <laughs> right? That's not the question God asked. Now, we can help people understand things. They're asking questions. But the kind of questions we ask is really important. Randy Patton said, questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. All right, that is so true. Um, we can know something that's true about a situation or person and state that truth. But sometimes that's the, not the most loving way of helping somebody understand the, the reality of the situation. Sometimes a question to cause them to think about it is much more effective, especially if we're saying, why did you? That kind of immediately puts them on the defensive, right? It's, it's, why did you almost sounds like you stupid idiot. And then what do they do? They get in defensive position and try to, to some degree, justify themselves rather than really thinking through what's taken place, what they did, what they wanted. And so generally want to try to avoid uh, why questions. And so instead of why did you do that, you might ask something like, can you help me understand what, were, what you were thinking when you said what you said? Or can you help me understand what you, um, what you were wanting uh, when you went after that? 
Some really good questions, and these were adapted from Getting to the Heart of Parenting by Paul Tripp uh, concerning questions other than why questions is what was going on? You know, in, in this particular argument or in, in what the situation is, what was going on? What was the situation? What were you thinking, feeling? We're kind of starting to probe into the heart here. Now, what did you do in response, the behavior? Uh, what did you want, the motive? What was the result, the consequences? What should be most important, ultimately, worship, right? Our calling is to love God wholeheartedly, love our neighbor as ourself. And, and what does it look like to glorify God in the midst of this situation? So when you get a chance for a redo, how can you do this to the glory of God? How can you live in such a way, speak in such a way that would be pleasing to Him? And so these type of questions uh, really help facilitate understanding of what was going on, what was wanted, as well as what does God want, and then how do we uh, seek to honor Him in that. Are those in your handout? Okay, good. All right. So next then, ask open-ended questions. And so as we're seeking to gather data, um, we, we, we don't want to ask yes-no questions. And there, there is a place for that, but generally we want to let them speak because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We want to know what's going on in their heart, what they're thinking, how they're processing things. Um, and so as we think about even how God interacted again with mankind in Genesis 3, God asked Adam, where are you? Okay? Now, God is omniscient, right? Is it as if God didn't know where Adam was? No, he knew exactly where Adam was. So was God then playing a game of hide-and-go-seek with Adam? Adam, where are you? Yeah, no, probably not. Um, rather, what he was doing, he's asking that question to help Adam understand that he had doubted God's goodness, that he had rejected the word that God had given to him, what he was to do, not to do, and then he had been deceived and followed, um, his wife followed the serpent. Okay? So again, good questions, very helpful in revealing the heart. And then God then asked this question as well, who told you you were naked? Okay, again, what is God doing here? Revealing the situation that had taken place. Helping Adam understand what he had done. I think in the back of that I put um, David Pallison's x-ray questions. Those are so good. If you have not gone through those for yourself, who should we counsel first? Ourselves, right? Good counselors are those who first self-counsel. And David Pallison's x-ray questions really help us think through uh, what's going on in our own hearts. And these can also, and I wouldn't give somebody the whole list of these as a counseling assignment, but maybe given what they've shared with you, you may give them some of these questions to think through and then interact with them over uh, in a future session. And so those x-ray questions by David Pallison, very helpful tool in gathering data. All right. Also, are those in there? Okay, very good. Also, in gathering data, we want to pay attention to verbal and nonverbal communication. Um, with verbal communication, we want to listen for primarily what is said. We want to hear the content. We want to make sure we understand it well. And so listen for the, the facts. Um, but also, uh, be aware that the counselee might twist the facts in his or her favor. 
especially if there's uh, an argument going on and, and rather than the person examining their own heart first, they're critiquing the other person and, and sometimes things get distorted and twisted. And so um, just be aware of that. The counselee might also see a problem as bigger or smaller than it really is. And something that's helpful to redirect, uh, especially if you're working with two people, if you get perhaps a couple and one of them says, he always fill in the blank or she never fill in the blank. Sometimes it's helpful to say, wow, that sounds really bad. Does he really always do that? Well, no, he did it twice in his whole life, <laughs> right? But what's that do to him? That's not true. I don't always do that. I did that twice. Okay, and so just helping them use statements that are true and accurate can be helpful in working towards uh, reconciliation. And so getting the facts right helps determine a solution and give hope. In nonverbal communication, uh, very important to observe um, how it is said. Okay. Um, the, the tone of voice, very important because the tone of voice is actually a reflection of the heart as well. Okay? Um, to illustrate that, Lou Priello's book, The Complete Husband, he says this regarding tone of voice. It says, think about the many bad attitudes that your vocal inflection is capable of communicating. Or maybe I should read it this way. Think about the bad attitudes that the vocal inflections of others is capable. We don't get too personal here, do we? He goes on to say there is disrespect, anger, hatred, bitterness, contempt, vengeance, fear, anxiety, pride, condensation, uh, uh, harshness, superiority, self-righteousness, sarcasm, criticism, callousness, impatience, and indifference, to name a few. On the other hand, with the tone of your voice, you can also communicate such righteous attitudes as love, acceptance, compassion, Forgiveness, patience, submissiveness, forbearance, humility, and gentleness. Okay? And which way do you want to be communicated with? The first or the second? Yeah, that second list, right? And also with our counselees, you're, you're going to have some, the scripture says, to be patient with all that are going to test your patience. Okay? And But a fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience And the way we communicate needs to be gracious and it needs to be loving, even in those times that we have to confront. Okay, And so the way we communicate with them, but also the way that they communicate with each other, uh, or if it's a group setting, the way they're talking to each other, those things reveal um, quite a bit. And so the tone of voice, also the body language, uh, that's important. And, and if you don't pick up on the body language, sometimes you're going to miss some of the biggest issues that, that should have been brought up that weren't, okay? Especially in a situation with a parent-child or husband-wife, one person saying one thing, and if you just not always glance back and forth to see what the body language is going to be, um, that body language speaks volumes. And if you don't catch that, and you don't give the other person a chance to respond to what's your understanding of the situation. You know, what, what, do you, what are you thinking about what was just said? Do you agree with that? Um, if you just go on, then you, you may eventually lose a counselee if you're not actually hearing them and giving them an opportunity to speak. And so body language can be very helpful um, in the midst of that. Facial expressions, you know, same thing. If you've ever actually seen smoke come out of somebody's ears, but close to it. 
Uh, and, and here's one for you. Odors. Like what in the world? Body language odors. Um, if you're dealing with somebody who's doing drugs, dealing with somebody who's drinking a lot, um, and they come in and they reek of weed, and you ask them, you know, how are you doing with, uh, you know, fighting the good fight and staying away from those things that would be self-destructive? And they say, oh, yeah, it's been six months since I, I had the last joint. And it's, you smell it, right? Um, or, yeah, I, I haven't drank in, in six months, but uh, you can smell it on them, okay? And especially with addicts, especially first working with them, it is hard for them to get away from that. And they are used to being deceitful to try to cover up and hide what they've been doing. And so I've had several instances where uh, their, their body odors gave them away, right? And, and in probing and confronting, eventually they confess up to it. And then we can talk about, okay, what does true repentance look like? And, and, and so on and so forth. But those types of things are important as well. And next, practice and encourage good listening. There's a Greek proverb that says we have two ears and one mouth that we may listen more and talk less. Okay? And as counselors, that's, that's actually some pretty good uh, wisdom there. Uh, listening is important because as Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if you want to get to the heart of issues in the counseling, you've got to encourage them to talk. And as they're talking, you need to actively listen, seeking to understand, making sure you've got the facts and you know what is being communicated. Uh, Proverbs 18.15 tells us that an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And so if we don't listen well to get understanding, uh, then Proverbs 18.13 becomes a reality for us. Uh, we began to give foolish counsel to them. It may actually be truth, and we could even speak the truth in love, but if we didn't hear them rightly, and we didn't listen well, we may be speaking to something they're not actually struggling with. Okay? And so again, want to make sure we listen well. Uh, and so we need to listen carefully uh, for the facts, listen actively for the facts, and as we do so, carefully consider what is being said. Carefully consider what is being said. And then uh, summarize what you have heard to make sure you have understood correctly. Okay? And so towards the end of the first session, I might say something like, Okay, uh, I want to make sure I've understood you correctly. Here are the things that, that you have come seeking help for. Is that correct? Uh, and here's what you've done about it so far. And here are the ways in which you, you believe help could be best given and, and just, you know, whatever you've talked about, kind of paraphrase that. And I've had times where I've just completely missed it. <laughs> they said, well, no, actually, that's not quite right. Uh, and what's also helpful and really important, I think, is when you're doing biblical counseling, especially with those outside your church, is to have an observer in there. One, for liability reasons. Uh, but two, um, oftentimes, if I've got somebody sitting in, they pick up on things that I didn't. Perhaps I'm taking notes and there was some body language that was strong and I just didn't even see it. Or sometimes I just misinterpreted what they were actually communicating. Okay? And so clarifying to make sure you understood correctly, very important, and loving them through the process. All right, and then also uh, listen without unnecessarily interrupting. So James 1.19 says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to become angry. And so why, 
Why is that? Well, we're, we're seeking to gather data. And again, so the more we can ask good questions and let them talk, the more understanding that we're going to have, especially in those initial settings. And so active listening involves avoid talking more than necessary. Uh, I actually know of um, some counselees who went to a biblical counselor and great individual um, but they didn't even get a chance to share the heart, and they were very transparent, wanted to help, completely open. They never even got to fully put everything out on the table. He, they, they weren't even listened to well. The guy just began to talk to them about their situation and experiences, and, and eventually they left because they never had a chance to share what they wanted help with. Okay? We don't want to be those kind of counselors. We want to ask good questions, but we want to seek to understand. And then, when we make sure we understand, to begin to, to take them to God's Word and speak the truth into their situation. And so, listen also, as you're gathering data for revealing phrases or mentalities, this is really important. Uh, because if you're hearing this in the counseling room or over a cup of coffee or wherever else it may be as you're working with somebody, uh, you need to take note of these things. And so revealing phrases and mentalities, uh, perhaps at the top of the list, most important, most common is blame shifting. Right? It started, again, back in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. Um, what do we have there? It is the woman that you gave me. What's Adam doing? Blame shifting. It's the woman. It's her fault. But wait, God, it's the woman you gave me. Okay? This has only gotten much more exponentially prevalent since Genesis chapter 3. Right? You're going to see a lot of blame shifting. And, and those are things that we need to, to catch and, and try to redirect. Uh, and we don't have time to go through all these, but phrases like, I can't, I've tried, I can't. Well, as believers... As God's called us to do His holy will, Paul says, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. And so, yeah, you're right. You can't in and of yourselves. You absolutely cannot. I'm glad you've come to that reality. But are you in Christ? Yes. In Christ, what do you have? The Holy Spirit. Okay? Through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, what do you have? All that you need that pertains to life and godliness. And therefore, He calls you to do this. He doesn't call you to do it because you can't. He calls you to do it because if you'll trust in Him, you can. And so just those types of, of words, the victim mentality, calling sin, illness, what they don't say, hopelessness, evasiveness, exaggerations, judging the motives of others, um, just all these different things are things that we need to try to uh, watch out for and pick up. And if you see these repeatedly, it is something that you're going to need to address, okay? Because they're, they're not loving the Lord or loving others by... Um, using these types of thought patterns in their situation. Uh, another way, important way, of not only gathering data, but keeping data maybe focused to best work towards a God-honoring solution, reconciliation uh, to whatever their situ situation may be, is keeping good records as a counselor. Uh, and so you want to keep good notes. Um, and there's, there's various forms that are already out there. You can use something, you know, like this. This is one that I typically use, um, and keep these filed away and come back and, and review them to make sure I've covered everything I need to be covered to help me prepare for future sessions, to know how to pray for them. And so I have name, who was observing on that day, session number, date, just keep things orderly, uh, but then the agenda. And so if I've already met with them, I've already gathered data, 
Um, and so in this session, based on what I've gathered, here's where I plan to go with them to help them out with further understanding and to further uh, look to Christ and, and become more like him. And then a drift of the session, a summary. How did things go? Um, what, what additional information data did I gather during our time together? And then also, what is the homework um, that one that I gave them that we reviewed, that's going to be part of the drift of the session, but then also homework for the next session. And so some of that I've, I've already put together tentatively is this is what I'll probably end up giving them if it goes the way that I think it might. And sometimes it just doesn't go that way, right? Sometimes, you know, you're focused on parenting and, and there's a major marriage issue. And it's obvious that parenting's not going to go well if they don't get this marriage issue resolved. And so you change focus and you might... You know, put the homework down there, um, and then evaluation of the session after it's done, and then plans for future sessions. And so just something like this to help us to continue to think through. If you go through the, the formal ACBC process, and I love this, um, you've got somebody who's got, I think, well over a 1,000 hours of biblical counseling who's helping you counsel somebody else. That's phase three, right? So you do these three weekends, you do your exams, you do some reading, you get better equipped, and then you actually start working with somebody else, and somebody's working with you to help you work with somebody else. And with each of those sessions, they call them case reports, there's 12 questions you're answering about every session. Those 12 questions are so good and helping you better help somebody else. And so just by keeping, whether you're doing that formally or not, just keeping good notes, what are the things we've talked about, what are the things that we've sufficiently addressed, where are the areas help is still needed, um, and keeping all that in an orderly file will help you um, keep your data straight and be able to better help them. And so also there are notes uh, for the first session, and perhaps the second uh, should be much more extensive than the following sessions. And so... Uh, in the first session, really, you're not going to be doing a whole lot of counseling. You're going to spend at least half that time just seeking to understand. Seeking to understand, as we'll see later, give them hope before they leave, and one of the other key elements. But really seeking to, to understand the situation. Uh, and so you want, again, detailed factual data, initial tentative hunches or conclusions, which, again, you're going to come back and have to ask more and more questions to further understand, to be able to further help. You want a full agenda of areas uh, yet to be explored. And again, you can't cover every, every area in an hour. You just can't. And so what are the main things? And then this is really helpful quotations, uh, things that the counselees actually say. Um, I do that for two reasons. One, I don't have the best memory. And when, when they share... I want to write down the most important things that, okay, these are things I need to remember. These are things we need to come back to. But then also, if somebody is struggling with anger, and, and you see this is clearly something that needs to be addressed, um, you can, the week later, two weeks later, whenever you need to come back and address that particular subject, you can say, you know, you said this, and therefore can we explore that further? Versus, you know, it seemed like you were angry back then, and they don't remember what they're angry about. But if you have their words and you bring up their words, that connects with their thought patterns. And they say, oh, yeah, okay. Um, and it's not you making a false accusation, but rather you, you've said this. Let's probe into this a little bit more. Okay. So those quotations can be really, really helpful um, in helping bring up further data and how to better help them. Another uh, important aspect of keeping notes is just a comprehensive counseling plan. Um, again, if you're using a PDI, 
you kind of know generally which direction you need to go, what may be most important. Uh, but then after that first session, taking, uh, and there's usually that PDI, there's usually going to be two, three things that are on there. By the time you're done meeting, that list usually expands to six or seven things that are probably going to be vital to help that person with. Okay, and again, you prioritize, and what's the plan, the priority to work through these uh, different things with them? And of course, you want to update that after each session. And so that's key element number one. And we're going to have to speed this up because we're supposed to be done at 12.30. Is that correct? You guys aren't hungry yet, right? Okay, key element number two. We've only got a little bit more. Discerning problems biblically. Uh, Oftentimes, the counselees will not clearly see the problem as it is. They wrongly identify the problem, such as my problem is clearly my spouse, or it's clearly my child, or it's clearly my teacher. Uh, They view their struggles purely as something outside of them. And so we seek to define the problem, uh, and we do so by identifying the issues at hand. Okay, again, on the PDI form, uh, remember the, the question that is asked, what is the problem that brings you to counseling? Okay, this is what they have presented to you. You want to make sure that we recognize and identify that problem. This can be things such as communication issues, broken relationships, some kind of addiction, anxiety, anger, whatever it may be. And so we want to identify those problems. Also want to identify the issues of habit, the issues of habit. What thinking or behavioral patterns have been so repeated uh, so often that they become habitual, affecting current circumstances and behavior? Okay, this has become part of what they do. This has perhaps even become a character issue. And so what are the habits um, that are there? Also identify the issues of the heart. The issues of the heart. In other words, what is the driving desire that fed the issues at hand uh, in the issues that have been expressed. What are behind those issues? And so questions to help identify that. What were they thinking? What were they wanting? What were their driving motivations? Uh, and this is important because thinking directs behavior and feelings. Right? What conclusions are they coming to about their situation? Uh, we do what we do because of what's in our hearts. Right? Because of what we desire, what we long for the most, what's in the heart directs the steps. Uh, also, thinking is important in changing behavior. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of the mind. If there's going to be real transformation, they've got to begin to think right thoughts about God, understand God's word rightly, and then learn to rightly respond to their situation and rightly identify perhaps the sinful ruling desires of their heart that aren't true worship of the one true God. So, so important. So having gathered sufficient data, we then look to the scriptures uh, to define the problem through the lens of scripture. And so in doing that, we use biblical labels to define and describe the problem. Okay, And this brings a lot of hope in counseling because when you can... Label things biblically as God sees them, then you can find biblical solutions. Very, very important. For example, if you have a spouse who has been unfaithful, uh, the world would define that as what? 
cheating, or an affair. But as you try to help them understand that biblically, say, go to the concordance and look up affair. What does God say about an affair? It's not there, right? It kind of lessens the severity of the sin by using different words that cheapen it. Uh, but rather, adultery is what you're going to find. And you're going to find multiple examples of places to go to deal with adultery. And so we want to um, use biblical terminology to help understand God's approach to that. A couple resources that I found very helpful over the year, the Christian's Counselor's Guide to Psychological Terms. I don't have time to go through this. You're welcome to come up and look at it. This is really good because you're going to have people, especially if you're, you're new to counseling, you're going to have people come in and, and they've you know, been given this label, that label, and some of these labels you're going to never have heard of, right? Um, and you don't know how to help them because you don't know what they're talking about initially. Well, you can open this up. You can probably find it in this book or the new version of this. And uh, you've got a, a psychological description and how in the world's wisdom they would see this and how they would then deal with this. And then you've got a biblical description, right? Which are we? <laughs> biblical counselors. But before we can help them, we need to understand what they're talking about with these labels, understand it through the lens of Scripture, so then we can help them with God's sufficient and authoritative word. So this is a really good resource, another Similar, transformed into his likeness. And this is actually great for parenting. It's so simple. It's just got these basics, put-offs, okay? So example, put-off, anxiety, sinful anxiety, and worry, okay? Well, that's good. We're put-off, but not just put-off. We need to put on. What do we put on then? We put on prayer, trust in God's sovereignty, and fatherly care. And then it gives you a list of scripture verses to help you think through those things. And so just a really good um, resource to understand things biblically and to help people then accordingly. Probably one of the most common that I see in, in the last couple of years is this term of narcissism. All right? Um, somebody comes in and spouse is calling the other spouse a narcissist. Uh, you say, uh, okay, what do we do with that? Uh, you look in the accordance of your Bible. Narcissist. Where do you find that? You don't. And the problem with that is narcissism, it's a worldly definition, and with the worldly definition, you then find all sorts of worldly methodologies of how to deal with that, usually involving punishment, usually involving boundaries, uh, not involving biblical peacemaking or reconciliation. And so if somebody's coming with narcissism, how would the Bible label that? Pride, arrogance, selfish ambition. Does the Bible have something to say about those things? All throughout scriptures, right? And so again, we need to help them think through what the Bible says about these and also God's way of dealing with that and not what they're finding on the internet or not what their friends are telling them, right? So much bad counsel out there that's going to interfere with what you're trying to show them to be God's very will for their life in the midst of that. So those resources are very helpful. All right, wrapping it up. Um, avoid psychological labels and terms. Um, test the validity of your conclusions. And so you, you've gathered data and you review that data and you run it by them to make sure you understood correctly. You're constantly praying as a biblical counselor for the wisdom of God, for the capital C counselor to be the one to ultimately do the teaching instruction to, to bring guidance uh, to your mind and to their mind. You want to seek further information, seek input from other counselors as appropriate. Uh, and so again, if I've got somebody sitting in, I may say, okay, what did you see as the main things where they needed help? 
um, what what do you see and, and you know whatever the conversation is and so ask for additional feedback and then of course explain your understanding to the counselee and ask for their feedback from your understanding and then last and this is where we'll go into the the future key elements formulate a strategy to help the person okay formulate a strategy to help the person help the person in response to the gospel to know what it means to offer themselves according to Romans 12.1 as a living sacrifice to God. Not being conformed to the pattern of the world, but renewing their minds and living a life that is, is pleasing to the Lord. All right, let me pray for us and then uh, your lunch will be well ready for you at this point. Father, we thank you that you are good, that you do good, that you have given us your word, you have given us your spirit. And Father, you've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, that we may live a life pleasing to you. And Father, we acknowledge that we need your wisdom uh, as we seek to deal with the struggles in our own hearts and our own lives and as we seek to come alongside others. Help us uh, to be those uh, that would be good listeners, to be those that would be compassionate, to be those that would be patient. Father, we ask that you would grant us all spiritual wisdom and understanding that we may walk in a manner, counsel in a manner that is pleasing to you and that through our lives and through the lives of those we minister to that the righteousness of Christ would shine forth. Father, I thank you for each of these and their desire to know you more and to make you known and to help others know what it means to live unto you. We pray now as we... Uh, partake of this lunch that you would use it to strengthen our bodies grant us the energy we need to continue to learn today and we ask all this in jesus name amen